Welcome to the second season of the Positive Fantastic Podcast with me, Maureen Atura. In 2022, I'm going to continue bringing you interviews with interesting folks doing awesome things in the world. My focus will still be mainly on Northern California with some forays out into the wider world. In addition, I'm going to start interspersing the interview episodes with little episodes about my own life on the homestead in Mendocino County. I loved getting to play with so many of my friends last year as I launched the Positive Fantastic. And this year, I'm hoping to really share more of my day-to-day experiences with you too. It was a bold move to start a podcast in which I do live interviews during the pandemic, but I felt strongly we all needed more good news in our lives. I feel that I was able to achieve that with this podcast, and I'm stoked to continue exploring this theme of how do we as humans thrive? One of the things that COVID has had me reflecting on the most is the ways that our current paradigm is lacking. We can and will need to do better to stay on this planet. I feel compelled to share some of the ways that we can make small personal impacts that will add up and contribute to a new paradigm that will hopefully be more sustainable, more life-affirming, and will support more people to thrive. For so many years, I really thought that I was prepared for the so-called apocalypse. I wasn't a prepper at all. I was just living my life close to the earth and resourcing my inputs from as close to home as possible. When the wildfire came and destroyed my neighborhood, leveling all of the houses for miles in its wake, I had a dramatic awakening. On the one hand, I had been so unprepared for the fire. I was aware of California's fire ecology, but I had not been living my life in a way that truly respected the tending of the wildlands to prevent such a tragedy. On the other hand, I had been living in community, growing copious amounts of my own food and living a fairly simple artist's existence in the hills that was, all in all, idyllic in the extreme. Until about a year before the fire, I didn't even own my own phone or computer. I used my neighbor's landline and computer occasionally. I was too busy homeschooling, homesteading, and learning useful skills to dabble in all the technological devices that are readily available if we want them. After college, I had reverted technologically and I had hardly looked back. It's a lot of its life for me. While I occasionally use some tech for certain things like chainsawing and such, I also loved studying the ways that we could perform tasks without electricity or gas. Historic mechanizations enchanted me, and I spent a lot of time doing things from scratch, by hand, and simply to at least know the full process before I tried to speed up my role. I acknowledge the extreme privilege of going slowly in a society bent on achieving the fastest possible processes on all levels. I regularly did all the gardening at home by hand. I would peel the bark off of fir trees with a draw knife in my leisure time. For anger management, I would wrestle with an invasive patch of blackberries with pruners in hand, because although blackberries are by far my favorite invasive species, they had taken over my small backyard zone, and I was bound and determined to create a food forest with a more diverse ecosystem. I share all this because I'm still in the process of learning and exploring how to do things well. While I appreciate efficiency and effective time management, I also revel in the opportunity to take my time with a new project, getting it wrong several times to understand what I need to do to improve my concept. This is a pretty useful skill in rural living situations and one that I feel has served me a lot. My intention in New Year's resolution is to bring more of these skills forward in the year of podcasting episodes to come in some segments about life on the land. And where better to start this year off than with a podcast interview about growing mushrooms? My first guests in 2022 are Lama and Matthew of The Forest People. These two live in the woods in Boonville, California, where they have created a low-energy input, nutrition-dense output mushroom cultivation scene. They also grow microgreens, which is a fine complementary project to their oyster world. And The Forest People are super well-informed about the eco-effectiveness of their venture. 
I hope you'll enjoy geeking out on all things mushroom with this couple as much as I did. Without further ado, here's the beginning of season two of the Positive Fantastic Podcast.
I'm Lama. I'm Matthew. And we're the Forest People, Radically Sustainable Mushroom Cultivation. And we grow mushrooms. family lives in the hills above Boonville in Mendocino County, and we specialize in growing oyster mushrooms. We have an indoor cultivation system that we've been using for the past several years, uh, and we sell to local businesses and grocery stores and at area farmers markets. We also do local deliveries when the season calls for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When the farmers markets kind of slow down is when we start doing some local deliveries and also the whole thing that happened, everybody wanted deliveries at their house. So the whole thing that happened, the whole COVID. COVID thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, those lucky few that live in our area that where I don't have to drive too far, get a home delivery. bit about the projects that you have going on at the forest people so a nice little project we just started we heard there was a change in the local microgreen market um, and so we started up some microgreens which are basically you just take you know cultivated seed like peas or rutabagas or kale or collars and things like that and you just grow it in a um, sterile medium inside of a, a flat in a greenhouse situation and so it's another one of those grow it year round nutritionally dense lots of food in a small space um, kinds of things so it and we also are already going to markets and also already going to the co-op so it's yeah, we were all we already did that legwork um often like i find you can it's easy to sometimes grow a lot of food what are you going to do with that food so i have a friend back in Boise who had this great idea, I'm gonna grow 300 zucchini plants. And yeah, it's amazing, lots of production, but then the problem is people don't need that much zucchini, so what are you gonna do with it all? And this is, this is a problem that you can encounter is in food production, yes, you get this huge bounty, um, but you, you also need those connections in the community. And I hear about a, a lot of small startups that put their product out there, you know, like in the YouTube world, you hear about these fail situations. And I, I think often the problem is, is the people just weren't, they just weren't making those human connections. And um, yeah. But anyways, back to microgreens. Um, it's just exciting because it just plugs right into our system and just seemed like a no brainer. And it's, it's pretty cool. Um, like Lama was saying, we get to see that green again. Yeah. And living up in the wonderful redwoods, you know, you see a lot of green, but you don't see that kind of um, vegetable green color. So, yeah. Yeah, Anything I'm really excited about the microgreens. They taste great with mushrooms, too, if you add them. Today, I got to tour your mushroom and microgreen facilities could we take a verbal tour with you? Our mushroom houses are near the bottom of our driveway where we live, nestled in the redwoods. 
and it's a beautiful property that we live on. And um, we get to work here and have our production cycle, which is every week, uh, which starts out using organic rice straw. And we pasteurize the rice straw in 55-gallon barrels in hot water. We bring it up to temp to kill any um, competitors that might be wanting to grow on the mushroom substrate. And then we build these vertical columns out of um, plastic that we uh, put the cooled and drained straw in and introduce the what's called grain spawn that has the mushroom mycelium in it. And those get made into these column bags, kind of like vertical logs, if you can imagine. And then we hang them up in our mushroom house. So when you enter the mushroom house, you walk into what we call a loading room. And that room, um, it's kind of like a tiny little box. And we walk in there and we close the door behind us before opening the door in front of us to make sure, you know, no bugs uh, or pests follow us in. Yeah, it's and... like an airlock chamber in a Andromeda <laughs> strain or something like that. It's our clean room. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know, one of the um, biggest threats to our mushroom production are uh, fungus gnats that enjoy um, eating mushrooms and laying their eggs in mushrooms. And we definitely don't want that in our product. So, um, and then we go through, uh, through the clean room into the control room. And that's where we have all our controls for our humidifier, our humidistats there, our ventilation controls, our um, irrigation controls, um, etc. Um, and it's also where our heater is. It's the warmest room of our facility. So we incubate our bags there, which means um, it's where they passively grow mycelium. Like, I don't know if it's passive if they're growing, but... Um, we don't do anything. We're passive <laughs> while they're growing. So um, the mycelium grows for about a month, depending on temperatures. Sometimes we can get it down to two weeks. Yeah, sometimes yeah. in the summer when it's really warm, um, they grow much faster. Uh, and then, But on average, it's about three weeks to a month before they're ready to be moved into a fruiting chamber. And the fruiting chamber is constructed in the main part of the shipping container, all these buildings I've been talking about uh, were built onto the shipping container. Um, and the shipping container itself is fully insulated and waterproofed. Uh, and it runs really high humidity. So we're, I think, 90 to 100% humidity uh, at all times, which is a good environment for the mushrooms. They really yeah. like that. And um, so when the vertical logs that we made are fully colonized. We move them into the fruiting chamber and they'll begin to fruit. They'll begin to fruit mushrooms and it's beautiful. They start out as little pinners, we call them. And they're these tiny little pinheads, like a little cluster of them coming out every hole that we've cut into the mushroom bags. And over several days, they turn into large, beautiful clusters. So, and like I said before, we grow oyster mushrooms and they have like this plain shaped cap like a large petal coming out and they form these bouquets and they have these gills that run under underside the petals and um, the repetition of lines and patterns just are stunning with them and while they are gray or brown or color sometimes they're tinged a little blue and they vary in shades of gray and brown so it's really pretty to watch them all come out and every single cluster is unique, like a snowflake. Mm -hmm. It's fun. Yeah, and 
when we talk about the fruiting chamber, it is what represents the greatest challenge um, to growing any mushroom is how do you create a really oxygen rich environment that is also a particular temperature and do that year round. And it's, it's really difficult. I like to say that we have to construct a, um, basically a really humidified wind tunnel essentially. And and that's (laughs) a challenge when it's either too hot outside or too cold. And especially because we have, we run our whole operation off less than 20 amps. I think the most amount of Watts that we're using at one time is like, I don't know, I'd say 500 Watts at one time when all the heaters, little things are running and all the ventilation, all the lights are on. Um, so, but yeah, just to add to that mushrooms need fresh air. So they breathe oxygen just like us and exhale CO2 just like us. And uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's right, and, that's right. And they need and, light as well. It's, and they need light. But yeah. for the ventilation problem, so mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of them. There's like a hundred of those vertical logs hanging in our fruiting chamber, and they're all breathing. And unless we evacuate that air and bring in fresh air, they will suffocate. So um, like Matthew was saying, that's been a challenge to keep a humidity level high. Um, and in the winter when it gets really cold, uh, to keep the space really warm enough for them to continue growing. Um, and yeah. exchange that air every few minutes. You know, we're we're you know pushing all that warm air out and bringing in uh, cold air that has to be heated quickly um, into the chamber. So, um, lots of trial and error. We've you know found a heater that works nicely, like a garage style heater that heats up the air quickly. Yeah, it's on demand. It's super efficient. There's no waste there. Um, but the big oh, what was that big thing that you just said? No, I forgot. Go ahead. Humidity, fresh air. It's gone. It's fine. Moving on. (laughs) Spores. Yeah, you want to talk about the spores? Sure. Uh, Spores are interesting. Spores are essentially the seeds of mushrooms. Uh, You know, they're when mushrooms um, fruit, they are in themselves the sexual reproductive body of the fungus. So the mycelium is the main organism, and when it wants to make babies, it makes a mushroom that then sporulates out of the gills. And oyster mushrooms are notorious for their large spore load, and um, those spores are so tiny, we can't see them, but we can see them when they build up on a surface or um, sometimes hang off the edge of the mushroom. In the beautiful crystalline formations. Oh, yeah. It can be amazing. Um, and so well, if we see that, it's not good news um, because, you know, maybe we didn't harvest quite on time. Or, or we missed a mushroom in a corner or somewhere. Dark yeah. Corner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the one that got away. Um, but the spores are so tiny that they will uh, go into our lungs and be absorbed into our bloodstream. And not a big deal if, you know, you're somebody who eats mushrooms or goes mushroom picking or whatever, but in a contained space with so many mushrooms, as a mushroom producer who's in that space on a daily basis, it can cause um, serious uh, allergic reaction over time. So we always wear respirators when we go in the mushroom house, and um, they're P100s, so they filter out um, pretty much everything, all the little spores that would otherwise come in. Yeah, and then one other note is that the spores are so prolific, they will completely clog your filter, your exit ventilation filter. Right. And um, 
we have to change I wonder ours. if there's some medicinal, if we could just capture the dang things. and The spores? I don't know about oyster spores. And I can do that with reishi spores. Reishi spores are medicinal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one goal is to have an orientation of the houses so that any of that heat that gets exhausted is then recirculated into something else. And the best that I can come up with is some, we're going to need more power for the fan, but somehow to take that heated air and push it into the micrograin chamber. So we've got, somehow we're going to have to get a tube. We've got CO2 rich warm air going it, it would into be the awesome. plant section. Um, these are the kinds of <laughs> things though, that. not having space, access to more space. And so uh -huh. we're just doing the best we can on a very, very small scale. Yep. Yeah, one cool thing uh, I've done a lot with my daughter when we go mushroom hunting is making spore prints. I've never done it on fabric or anything, but um, we've done it on paper and you can get really creative with it. Uh, basically, you find a mushroom, the ones with gills and um, that grow out of the ground. So they have your quintessential mushroom shape, stalk and cap. And then you trim the st stalk off and then if you set the mushroom on a piece of paper, gill side down, um, and leave it for several days, preferably not in your house, because um, you don't want all those spores getting in your house, but you can cover it with a pan lid or a bowl, and then the imprint you get is this beautiful round and um, radiating lines from the center that represent the gills when you pick up the mushroom. Or if you don't cover it, with a panlet or a bowl or something, then there's little wisps, like the spores get moved and it's like almost like a imprint of the mushroom, but then with a watercolor effect to it, a little whooshy, mm -hmm. and it can be really beautiful and unexpected. You yeah, can even I... make an arrangement with many different mushrooms. And uh, for, for spore prints, you don't need to identify the mushrooms because you're not eating them necessarily. So, um, it's much easier than looking for ones that are edible. Yeah, you don't have that anxiety. Is this going to kill me? <laughs> no, you can make a spore print out of it. Um, I once found an, some kind of agaricus toadstool next to the Boise River, brought it home, and I didn't put the lid over the top like Lemo was saying. And I remember taking the cap off, and there's just this perfect like Egyptian eyeball that had formed. So it's fun. It's like found art. It's making itself. Mm -hmm. Sounds fun to do it on clothes, too. I like your idea. So, Do you guys ever dabble in spore art? Uh, you know, when you're walking around and you harvest a mushroom, you can, um, you can put it onto your hat. Or, and then as it's um, sporulating then and you're walking, then the spores are just kind of traveling and you're propagating the forest. There's just a lot of different <laughs> things you can do out in the wild as a mushroom forager. I'm wondering if you've played with that at all in your cultivation system. When someone comes to Ukiah Farmer's Market, um, they see not only your oysters, but also you partner um, with a neighbor to bring some other mushrooms as well. Yeah, so we're currently selling at the Ukiah Farmer's Market, which is a year-round market every Saturday. It's at 9 to noon. If you're in the area, you should check it out. It's a beautiful market. Lots of produce and crafts and um, music, all sorts of things. Uh, the library comes and does story time. It's really fun. It's a good family excursion. Uh, and 
gosh, I just love farmer's markets. I think that's my favorite part of growing mushrooms is being able to offer them to people in such a positive social environment like a farmer's market. Um, and at our table, we have oyster mushrooms and now we have microgreens, uh, which has been a fairly recent addition. So we've been doing that for about a month. And we also offer lion's mane and shiitake mushrooms that are grown by our neighbor who we partner with and their business is natural products of Boonville. And you can find them online if you want to check it out, naturalproductsofboonville.com. And they have mushroom houses right across from ours where they um, have a lion's mane chamber and a shiitake chamber. And he also does outdoor shiitake logs. So he has ricks of shiitake logs, which are outdoor grown. So not as consistent as indoor production, but they're a sight to see. They're beautiful, you know, crystalline patterns on the caps and dense, rich, delicious mushroomness. Yeah, <laughs> mushroom not goodness. something you can get at Whole Foods. Um, Definitely not. Yeah. yeah. And also, I would like to shout out to Trout's. Um, he's he's the operator of Boonville Naturals. Shout out to <laughs> Natural Products of Boonville. Excuse me. They've been toying around with other names. But anyways, um, amazing mushroom tinctures. He goes the extra mile, very high quality. He's not giving you crappy product. So stuff imported yeah, from really, China. really special. Yeah. You guys are running your enterprise of cultivating mushrooms um, as close to sustainable as as possible for your production size. What does that really translate to for the forest people? What are some examples of what that looks like tangibly? Okay, well, I think it for some mushroom people, it might be a little bit of trivia, but for the person who's not familiar with the efficiency possibilities with growing mushrooms, um, you know, you could take one pound of dry straw and you'll get one pound of wet mushrooms from that straw. If you were to take a pound of straw and try to feed it to a cow, they're going to kind of be upset with you. It's not really necessarily very nutritious for a cow. Cows require much more input and nutrition per pound of meat that you would produce. So cows are, I think, if I remember right, it's like a seven to one so it's whatever, you know, seven pounds of alfalfa and grain will become one pound of, of beef. But with mushrooms, it's straight one-to-one -one, um, conversion, conversion ratio. ratio. And sometimes yeah. more than that. Sometimes right. you can get 150%. And it's there have been reports of up to 200% bioefficiency. Um, a really cool little fact that we heard recently is that the amount of protein that can be produced on an acre with any mammal you choose runs in the, the, the 10 thousands um, of grams of protein per acre. With oyster mushrooms, if you were just to grow uh, a crop of meadow grass or a crop of straw or wheat and harvest all the wheat and then take that leftover bagasse or uh, um, as they call it, agricultural waste, which is a weird name for it because it's still totally usable, you get hundreds of thousands of grams of protein per acre. So if we're talking good news, we're talking solutions. Yes, there's there's always an aspect to sustainable agriculture that's questionable and needs to be updated and improved. 
but oyster mushrooms and mushroom production does represent a solution for these global challenges that we face, like hunger and lack of access to resources and, and arable land and all these kinds of problems that we face. Can we can get closer to the solution of actual sustainability by growing mushrooms? That's why I'm inspired by them. And the more we hear about them, the more they research them, they have all these medicinal properties. It's not just your reishi. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it, there, it's an inspirational thing yeah. in general. And if I can so. interject on the space usage. So for our operation, we're using two shipping containers that, again, have been custom outfitted for mushroom production. But we're producing over 100 pounds a week of, again, nutritionally dense, high-protein food. Yeah, so it's really phenomenal the, the amount of food you can produce with on a small footprint. And with very little energy usage, um, fractions of the amount of water that you would use for outdoor production? There's this system of grass growing called Junkow grass. And yeah, the Junkow grass growing system is being implemented in China. Um, sometime in the 80s and 90s, their hardwood forests were disappearing so they could produce shiitakes and other hardwood species of mushrooms. And so there's this Chinese um, professor, I forget his name, and I forget the university he was affiliated with, but he came up with this way to grow annual and, and perennial grasses in order to grow the mushrooms. And they call it the Junkow grass growing system. And so like if we were to move towards something that would be ultimately sustainable, it would be that we would have some perennial species of grass or other carbon producing crop that's simultaneously capturing carbon in the soil and growing this renewable stream of, of carbon for us to turn into mushrooms, basically, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. So yeah, right now we're bringing in organic rice straw. Um, you know, it's only a couple hours drive away, but um, it's part of the dominant agricultural system that still is petroleum based and tractor based and all that. Um, and our grand vision is to eventually grow our own substrate to grow our mushrooms on that, like Matthew said, is perennial, a perennial grass that could be hand harvested. Um, and then used as the mushroom substrate. Yeah. I'm not sure if anyone's ever done the study, but there is this really invasive grass. It was a bromy down or something, a cheap grass that grew in Idaho and just destroyed all the rangeland. But it grows millions of pounds of carbon every year that people will either just burn or they'll use pesticides to get rid of this grass. And the ironic thing is, is that we could mow it and turn it into millions of pounds of food. So I think there are lots of solutions available in the environment, no matter where you are, unless you're in Antarctica, but I guess you like seafood then, but um, <laughs> I don't know. I just, yeah, lots of things to be positive about for sure. And um, growing oyster mushrooms is just one of a small piece of the puzzle. I don't think um, anyone can create that total replication of nature's system, but if we can get our individual pieces and, and energy that we're putting in to be, become a part of that contribution to that larger system. I, I just think we're talking solutions. Yeah, we're, we're getting closer. Mm -hmm. sure. so. Yep. We have a grand vision, as I mentioned, this Junkow style system. Um, the Mithcansis, 
Say it. I can't say it. <laughs> Miscanthus giganteus. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> that we're playing with in our garden right now. Um, so our grand vision includes oyster mushroom production using that grass as a substrate um, and getting as close to a closed loop system as possible. So we're growing that grass in our garden uh, along with a um, selection of vegetables for our own subsistence garden. Uh, so that'll be a part of our grand vision where it's all tied in yeah. to one system. A neat fact about that grass is that it's the world's tallest grass. It's a hybrid. Um, it's sterile, though. It doesn't produce seed. You can only propagate it through the bulbules. Um, but it's a, it's a the world's considered the newest, most amazing biofuel crop. It's just it's getting way more efficiency than all the other uh, biofuel productions, which I'm not really big on biofuel. But it's cool to take, you know, we can skim off of all their R&D and produce oyster mushrooms with it. So it's just fun stuff like that. Today's public service announcement is about the Human Sustainability Project. The Human Sustainability Project is the ultimate grand vision of the forest people in which we would be on a small parcel of land, preferably between 5,000 and 10,000 square feet, and we will create a demonstration using the most modern agricultural um, silviculture, agroforestry, permaculture, put in all those buzzwords, techniques in order to try to demonstrate an actual closed loop food production system, not to uh, close ourselves off from community, but to demonstrate to our community how we can produce all the things that we need um, on, on a very small parcel of land in our own community without importing or exporting. We can do those things if we still want. And the very core of the Human Sustainability Project is compost. I mean, everything that we do and are comes from these complex relationships that microbes have built with plants and the soil. So at the base, it's very simple. We're just going to be working with microbes, and we're going to show all the people that are headed off to Mars why they should stay on Earth. <laughs> They can go to Mars if they want. We'll stay here. Yeah. If one was interested in finding out more about the Human Sustainability Project, you could go to forestpeoplemushrooms.com. And I believe it's in the About section. You can find that link to the Human Sustainability Project. And there you will find a, a sort of updated website where we post our more radical ideas and projects. Like right now I'm about to post about, about this wax worm plastic consumption project where we've started raising these wax worms that have been shown to be able to digest polypropylene. So we're going to uh, run some side experiments with just plain substrate. And then I'm going to mix with plastic and see how the worms deal with that. And then I'm going to try to inoculate the worms guts with our bioreactor compost, which is said to contain plastic consuming microbes within it. So anyways, it's all very speculative and hypothetical but it's fun because on a very small scale we're doing citizen-led science and we don't have any funders or backers
getting to see your system, one of the things that I'm really passionate about is composting. And you guys actually have this unique composting methodology that I haven't been familiar with yet in the um, in the past, I've seen a lot of different styles of compost. So I'm curious if you could kind of describe what it is that you guys are doing here um, that's particularly applicable to mushroom cultivation so that our listeners can can get savvy on this new method. So one thing that we do after the entire mushroom process is over with, we've harvested from the bags, um, is we will take all of that material, which is called spent substrate, and we'll create compost with it. How we make this compost, um, it's called Johnson Sioux bioreactor compost. It's highly fungal, very diverse microbial environment. Um, we'll take our spent substrate and put it in a large vertical cylindrical container with tubes running through the center of it that, for about 24 hours that allow a lot of oxygen to come through the pile. The pile um, never really heats up. Maybe it'll get around 140 degrees for about two days or a day or so. Um, and After 24 hours, yeah. the tubes are removed. Yep. And at that point, um, the microbes have secreted glomulin, which is like the sticky substance that, um, you know, think of clay. So it holds those tube shapes to keep the system aerated throughout its life. And yeah, I mean, if, if I was just to boil it down, it's a no-turn compost system. You never turn it. You load it once. You let it sit for a whole year. It gets really oxygenated. It never heats up. Um, and then by the end of the process, you have taken basically pure carbonaceous material that has nothing but oyster mycelium in it. And at the end, you have a clay-like, moist, looks like chocolate cake, um, consistency material. If you look at it under a microscope, which is the key to really assess what's going on with your compost, you would see a massive microbial party compared to taking like a commercial compost that's been made in a huge windrows and turned and gotten really hot over and over again. It's gotten really anaerobic on the inside. You look at that compost under a microscope and it's a monocellular desert of what looks to be just one or two different bacterial species. Um, so what, what, are we, what are we making this compost for? Because it's extremely potent. So one pound of this compost can inoculate two acres of ground. Um, so what happens when you inoculate the ground with this compost is that you replace the, the diversity of the microbes in the soil, which have been lost through basically 150 years of really terrible uh, practices like tillage and not having cover crops, not keeping a living substrate. Overgrazing. Overgrazing, uh, erosion, erosion, runoff. Um, and you start to repair that microbiome. And the plants will then yield more. There will be significant more capture of carbon in the soil. And what they're finding in uh, up to now, there's about a 10-year research plot going on is that every year the carbon capture is going up and every year the yield of the plants is going up and we don't really know the limits of it yet but essentially you know it's as efficient as a kelp forest system or an amazon rainforest system where for every square meter of ground you're getting 
over 3,000 grams of dry matter, um, which, you know, a kelp forest is around 2,800 grams of dry matter per square meter. So we're getting efficiencies that were thought to be impossible in our yields when we're repairing the microbiome in the soil. And that's what this compost can do. So we're taking a waste product, turning it into food, then we turn that product that's left over into compost, which then creates more food again. So hopefully we're, we're trying to be a little bit a part of that system and we're giving back at the end to hopefully grow more grass that we can then put back into the system mm -hmm. to grow more mushrooms. So. And I'd like to add that this idea of introducing uh, diversity of microbes into your soil kind of turns the um, current understanding of soil science on its head. Um, you know, all the farmers we know are the understood practices that you introduce organic matter. And, and that's how you're going to get, you know, a better yield of vegetables and, you know, whatever you're growing. Um, and for our garden, we haven't introduced organic matter. We, we use this bioreactor compost more as an inoculant. Um, you know, we inoculate the seeds or we make, you know, um, uh, not an aerated compost tea, but like, um, call it an extract, an extract. just like a tea bag that you swirl it's steep, around. Like it's steeped in quickly. Yeah. And then we water the plants with it. Uh, and, so you're essentially, we're essentially inoculating the soil and the plant roots. Um, and those microbes are unlocking stuff in the soil for the plants and they're adding to the plants health so that the plants can, you know, ward off pests on their own and help their own immune system and, um, you know, develop relationships with everything in the soil better. And, uh, it, it's really fantastic. Yeah. I mean, Dr. Johnson, who is doing the research, on this composting process over at Chico State, he's found um, the, the kinds of diversity of bacteria. Some of them are really strange. Some of these bacteria and fungi are able to solubilize gold. Um, they can drill straight into a gold molecule and make it become a part of their body. They can drill right through granite. So it's not that you can input a whole bunch of organic matter and it's gonna increase your tilth and you might see a yield increase if you don't have massive magnesium and potassium imbalances and problems there. Um, but if you don't have the community of microbes in the soil to take advantage of that organic matter, you can actually create problems in the long run, which is totally anathema to our current organic movement information is that we should just always be putting organic matter into the system. Um, you know, if you want to like get a soil test, it's really telling. Most soil tests will not say a single thing about what microbes you have, what bacteria you have, what fungi you have, the diversity, the counts, all this kind of stuff. There's a couple of labs out there now that are starting to do that. Um, but that's just, it's very telling that even in the, the deeper parts of the organic farming movement, we're still treating soil as if it's just a container for nutrients. And it's actually that the microbes are breaking down the parent rock below, which they've always done for billions of years, and they're turning that into soil, which then these symbiotic relationships form with the above-ground creatures and the below-ground creatures, and eventually they all blend together, and we, we actually don't know which one's producing which. It's a chicken-and-egg scenario. And I think if you can identify in a living system the exact uh, 
component of that system that's producing the other part of that system, then there's got to be an imbalance because it's really hard to suss out in these really complex living environments what is causing what. And I think once you lose sight of the causal mechanism, then you're actually like in nature and you're actually gardening and you're actually doing something that's beneficial instead of just taking and taking and taking, you know? So yeah, lots of grand ideas, but on the ground, we just have a lot of work to do to reeducate ourselves that um, there's just really big, big interests and they make a lot of money and they want us to think in very certain ways. And if your gardening practices involve going to a store to get a liquid jug of nutrients, you just might want to question um, where's that all coming from and, and what is the purpose of, of that? Just, just kind of reevaluate maybe because uh, even really intense, fantastic organic growing systems, we could still be poisoning our aquifer below with too much nitrogen runoff. Like, yes, get your fish fertilizer, get your calfos and get all of your organic uh, soil additives, but what's happening to them when you put too much and, uh, you know, just all of these questions, we just have to ask a lot of questions when we make decisions in, especially in small scale farming, because there's just a lot of, like I said, entrenched interests and they're going to try to sell you something. And, um, sometimes it's good what they want to say. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's a dependency or a way of life that's dependent on the dominant system. What are some of the local farmy things that you guys are involved with at the forest people? Matthew and I have always been very passionate about, you know, food production and this you know organic lifestyle and land-based systems and recently we've um taken on hosting the farm and garden show uh and it airs once a month on kzyx and you can find us the third thursday of every month at three o'clock interviewing local farmers interviewing yes. local farmers yes <laughs> hopefully and doing the best that we can to bring uh, a spotlight to the people in the area, kind of like what Maury's doing, which is cool. Um, and then what was I going to talk about? The Good Farm Fund. Yes. and Oh, oops, I screwed up. Well, there is there's a local organization that's really fantastic that a lot of people should spread the word about. They're called the Good Farm Fund, and they get grants and scholarships and donations in order to give grants to farmers in the local area, um, especially small scale producers, people that an extra 3000 an extra $500 could make the difference between I'm going to produce food for people in this area or I'm not. And so they're, they're doing some really fantastic work over there. Yeah. I feel confident in saying that we wouldn't be here today as the forest people without the help from the good farm fund, which is all community, super local, community fundraising, um, and then they um, offer grants, like Matthew said, to small farmers. And we've received uh, three over the past three years, which has really been wonderful and allowed us to stabilize our business. 
you know, we've been bootstrapping this since day one. And just, you know, every little bit of money we make, we put it right back in to our business um, and try to just nudge a little further into the stable zone. And having, um, you know, that extra money, that grant just come in, allowed us to expand our business and buy equipment that we needed to become more um, self-reliant um, and um, yeah, I, I can't thank them enough. Uh, goodfarmfund.org is where you can find information if you want to participate in uh, supporting local food producers. Where can people find your mushrooms? You can find our mushrooms at Ukiah Natural Foods and Corners of the Mouth in Mendocino or at the Ukiah Farmer's Market, Saturday mornings from nine to noon, Alex Thomas Plaza, and that's a year-round market. So summer and winter and spring and fall. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you both so much for being on the program with me today. It's been really lovely to get to know you better and to hear about the Forest People Project. Thanks for coming out. It's yeah. been a pleasure. It's been yeah. a great conversation. We've really enjoyed it. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for tuning into Season 2, Episode 1 of the Positive Fantastic Podcast. I'm Maureen Natura, and you can reach me by checking out my website, maureenatura.com. You can read about upcoming author events or sign up for my email list to stay up to date with the content that I create. If you go to maureenatura.com slash thepositivefantastic, you can link directly to any of the podcast episodes that have already been published and see short summaries describing each episode. I'm on social media, and you can follow me on my Facebook page, Maureen Atura Author, and you can follow me on Instagram, at Author Maureen Atura. Check out my channel at youtube.com slash to see a video of the mushroom growing rooms and microgreens operation that Matthew and Lama have created at the Forest People's Cultivation Site in Boonville, California. Special shout out about the song for this episode, which is an original composition by Daniel Fry and performed by the Fry's. You can follow the forest people on Instagram and Facebook at forest underscore people underscore mushrooms. You can check out the forest people's offerings on their website, forestpeoplemushrooms.com. You can find their products at Ukiah Natural Foods in Ukiah, Corners of the Mouth in the town of Mendocino, and at the Ukiah Farmer's Market Saturdays from 9 to 12 in the Alex Thomas Plaza. You can also listen to Matthew and Lama as they host the Farm and Garden Radio Show once a month on KZYXNZ, showcasing Northern California farmers. This first episode of Season 2 of the Positive Fantastic Podcast has been brought to you on the new supermoon, and I hope you'll join us on the next full moon when I discuss how to cultivate your own mushroom logs at home. Cheers, and may your journeying be fantastic. <laughs>